we're back, baby! Woo! It's good to be here again. How you doing, over there, Russ? Yeah. Doing all right, Mike. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. It's been uh, a month. August 9th was our last uh, That's right, upload. A little... And now this one's going up on, what, September 12th, I guess, in the uh, West. September 13th right. in Japan. Yeah, been right. about a month. Yeah, and uh, it's been quite a... Quite a lot of listening. I uh, took the opportunity to uh, listen to a few operas as we um, as we were going. So they take some time. Um, some some new things uh, that uh, came down is uh, first of all the uh, Gramophone Awards shortlist was announced in classical music. This is uh, England's um, or Great Britain's. Um, the British magazine uh, Classical Music Awards and I generally like this one because they tend to pick really good uh, things although it t- does tend to be a little eh, a little England heavy not really that they're not really that much they're not as bad as the Grammys are with putting like American all American things on there but uh, I was looking through that list and uh, definitely want to talk about that I was thinking you know of doing something we, we were both thinking about doing something about the Gramophone Awards um sometime soon before they announce the winners, but they're announcing the winners on September 22nd, and there's no way we're going to listen to all 66 of those recordings. 72, if you count the uh, the, the new category, the, uh, what is that, the Dolby Atmos category, spatial audio or whatever they called it. That they sounds a, terrible. It, it I read about it. I'm kind of not terribly interested in it. You know, you'd have to kind of... Was that brings to, me back yeah. to like... Was that earthquake and sense around or some gimmick like that, right? Where the seat the seats shook in the theater or something back yeah, in the seventies. Back in those days, though, they had a lot, they they could put a million speakers in the uh, in the movie theater to make it sound really amazing. But yeah, now they're kind of trying to create this illusion of surround in your headphones, in your and earbuds. I, I can't. Yeah, I. It's 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 to me that's just stereo. Just buy better speakers. Yeah, it's just stereo. Well, I don't like when the sound from the original recording is manipulated to be something else, you know? It's always bad. Yeah, let me kind of explain my take on audio to, uh, you know, me and Russ are a little different on this, but my basic approach is I want to hear what the engineer put on the tape. Okay, so if it's a super audio recording, I'm going to want to hear the, 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 the super audio quality. Okay, and I want to say I have uh, a surround like the 5.1 in my house, but uh, I want to say it's not it's not necessary to hear the surround. It doesn't really add all that much. There's a lot more space. It it, it opens up the space a bit, and I find that kind of exciting because I can hear the individual parts. There's no need for it, but the engineer did make a 5.1 surround sound recording, and I want to hear what he did, what he decided, or she. It's usually he, though. Let's in, in classical music. Let's let's just say it. Um, I want to hear what he thought or she thought the um, you know the, the uh, sound should be. You know, so I'm, I'm always interested in that. I'm kind of like that in uh, video too. In Blu-ray, if something was mastered to 4K video, I want to see it in 4K. I don't want to see the blue just the Blu-ray. You know, I'm kind of. I want to see what they what they did, what they intended. Intentions. Intentions are big with us classical music people, I guess. Yeah, I guess I'm more of the, you know, two-channel purist yeah. myself. I uh, don't need a subwoofer or a surround. Yeah. I just need two good speakers. We have an excellent stereo there, too, so that's part of it. Yeah, that helps out. 
And yeah, well, you really don't need. I I will stand by that though. You don't need more than two speakers. I mean, it's all there. You know, should be. Yeah, yeah. if all yeah. the imaging is right and the recording's good, yeah, the equipment is up to speed. You should be all right. Well, I'm happy in this. When we left off a month ago, I had a yeah. long list of new releases that I was waiting to come out on streaming. The way things are these days with the record companies, they'll have a real, you know, something of upcoming release without a hard date. And then the dates are so different for when the disc goes on sale in various countries and the streaming dates can be very different. And I, you know, I had a list of more than 20 things I really wanted to hear and none of them were available. I was really frustrated, but now, Almost all of them are there now. And so I've got a long uh-huh. green lighted list of things to uh, work on, plus some more upcoming things. So uh, now we're ready to roll with lots of material for the foreseeable future. So I feel kind of wound up and ready to go with uh, jazz things. Yeah, I've, I've got a backlog of classical things that could probably last us until Christmas, um, which we intend to go to uninterrupted and beyond. Possibly, you know, depending on you know circumstances, of course. Special, yeah. uh, special episodes in there too. As far as yeah. regular episodes go, I think we're going to do a special gramophone one, gramophone awards one. We we won't necessarily hear all the recordings, but I want to talk about all the uh, recordings. I, I have an idea for like a Christmas classical for this year because I have a few uh, things I want to recommend for that that came out over the course of this year or last year. Yeah. And uh, yeah, maybe maybe a few more interviews. What do you think? We'll get we some get interviews. Somebody? I got some ideas. Hmm. We'll see. We've got some interesting three interview episodes too. If you haven't checked those out, uh, check those out. I think we can get some more interesting things coming up. Yeah. Right. And so I think it'll be a good fall for things to listen to and uh, new surprises too. Yeah. And, now I uh, mentioned. Yeah, I mentioned that I have all the like a backlog of classical stuff, but there's going to be a lot of good things coming out in September, October, November as well. So, yeah, it's gonna, you know, it's it's just December, January. It lets up a little bit February as well, but uh, it's kind of it's we'll keep rolling. we're not going to get them all in. There's so much good music. It's been quite a year that way. It's been musically, it's been a very good year for me. I've kind of got to say. Yeah, and so this, well, let's see, we left off, this will be episode 27 then. Yeah. Regular episode 27 of Adult Music, podcast yeah. with music for the mature mind. Before yeah. we get into this week's selection, I want to remind our listeners that in the episode description here, you'll find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music that we'll discuss also, at the top of the description is a link to the full episode playlist. That's all the music in one place on Deezer, where you can follow us at username Adult Music Podcast. And you can listen to the podcast there. If you like, we use Deezer for our music streaming listening because we like the selection and the sound quality. Uh, wherever you're listening to us, if you don't see the full description or list on your app, uh, just come on over and check us out on our host, uh, Podbean. We will find all the links and description uh, easy to read. Uh, some of the apps and other uh, hosting sites uh, don't really include all the links. So clearly I've noticed, but uh, Podbean has everything uh, the way that I make it easy to follow when I upload it. 
And then if you enjoy the podcast, uh, please do follow us or subscribe on whatever app or platform you're listening to. And uh, if you take a minute to give us a ranking or write a review, it helps us get listed in the browsing category recommendations. And that helps us grow our audience and get new listeners, which we're always happy to have. And then in addition, if you have anything above that, that you'd like to uh, let us know directly, or contact us uh, with some comment or questions. So we'd be happy to hear from you. Our email address is adult music podcast. That's all one word at gmail.com. And we'd be happy to hear from you. So drop us a line. Yeah, you, you can see that, uh, email address on Podbean. It's written at our host site there. I also want to mention that if you're, if you subscribe to Deezer and you follow us on Deezer, you can uh, find out what we're going to talk about in the next episode a week early because uh, we share to really all of our, everybody following um, what we're going to talk about uh, next week. So you can hear it in advance yeah. and then, uh, you can uh, listen to us talk about it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, knowing what it is. <laughs> I know you said, uh, is your brother right? He like my brother Richard. Checks, my brother checks Richard out checks yeah. out the shout out uh, to Richard. I know he's checks, listening. Checks I know his daughter the, Brianna's listening too. <laughs> okay. Hey, Hi, Brianna and Richard. Thanks for listening. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I suppose you could listen to the music first and then listen to us blab about it, or right. the other way. If something sounds interesting, then you could check it out. But uh, I try to. We usually by. Monday afternoon after we upload the podcast, we're already talking about what we're going to do the next week. And I try to get, you know, that full uh, playlist up by Monday or Tuesday at the latest on Deezer. So you can you know check out the music one week early if you'd like to. Yeah. Uh, so it's there. And we, we picked up a couple extra uh, Deezer followers, too. And uh, happy to see that. So have yeah. we really? I didn't yeah. even see that. There's a couple oh. more there. Well, a few people um, know what we're going to talk. Actually, no, I didn't post next week's yet. I'm going to. Well, by the time this episode is up, they'll. By the they'll time this is up, uh, yeah, by yeah. by tomorrow evening, we'll, I'll have the new playlist up so you can check out what's coming up for the next episode. Right. Okay. Um, also, before we start with the classical music, um, September 11th just passed, and I know most people think of that as the. Uh, anniversary of the terrorist attack on uh, New York, but uh, one of the things I think about is, um, for that day, is Arvo Pert's birthday, the Estonian composer Arvo Pert, who is the most performed uh, contemporary classical music composer. He does a lot of religious music, like Orthodox Russian church music, and some really gorgeous um, instrumentals as well. Very still and just beautiful. Uh, he just turned 86 years old, so happy birthday to Avro Pert. We will be talking about him, uh, his music in coming weeks, maybe within a month or something like that. So if you don't know who he is, uh, you're in for a nice treat. Okay. Even though he's Estonian, I give him the all-American toast and salute here, as this episode will well, certainly well, the be. Almost all-American toast all -American and salute. I think our, salute, our episode so. today is called Almost all American, like it's we almost. just, we we were almost there. We just didn't make it. Almost, and I spent the last month, the longest that I've spent in the states in a long time, yeah. and I felt that I was almost American again, but not quite. Not quite. Not quite. It's <laughs> Everybody's different, different now, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a different country than I left, and uh, well, that's a whole other story. But let let me let me let me kind of 
say something about that because um, I am, a, a, I think I've mentioned before, an Italian American. And I've often, my, my uh, let's see, I know that uh, the, the Vazzuto family, my, um, my father's, uh, father's family, immigrated to the U.S. in around 1901. All right. And one thing I, kind of think about is I've been to Italy and I've met some of my uh, relatives there. And one of the things I noticed is that in it, when people immigrate from one part place to another, they preserve the culture that they left. Okay. So there's a lot of like old things, but when you go back, um, they didn't preserve anything. Time just went on right. and these people have become modern people. So if you really want to know what, uh, say Italy was like uh, 50 or a hundred years ago, you can go to an Italian American's house because they, <laughs> they preserved a lot of customs that really don't exist anymore. And I'm kind of wondering if you felt like uh, going back to America was sort of similar, like it kind of, it kind of moved on and you just sort of remember an older way of things. Yeah. I feel that in, in some ways, um, you know, of course, with your family, things get sort of fossilized. Uh, and so you see those things that don't change too much. And yeah. at the same time, in the larger culture, you know, things have really moved on, you know, just small things like going shopping or, you know, anything that's out in public is very different from how you remembered it. Um, right. So I always get those big contrasts um, between family and public life. And then, you know, just the general vibe of, you know, people and, um, you know, plus we're not so young anymore. And as you yeah. get older, the time goes by quickly. And, uh, you know, you, you find all these sort of contrasts between who you are now and who you were and, yeah. and then where you came from. And then your idealized versions in your mind of that. And, uh, you know, certainly there's, there's those type of things. Um, but I, I think, as you say, the, sort of immigrant experience uh, sort of became a snapshot in America, probably you know, around the world and other countries too, but certainly in America. And those traditions were preserved in uh, people's lives. And uh, probably the place they came from has moved on. But uh, yeah, it's an interesting mix of things to think about. Uh, and I had a lot of time to think about it while I was back there. So yeah, yeah anyway. Not only is time uh, time moves faster when you're um, older. And by the way, if you're curious about that phenomenon, why that happens, there's an excellent book about it. Um, please read Time Warped by Claudia Hammond. Uh, it kind of explains the whole psychology between behind why time moves so much faster when you're older and stuff. It's really interesting. Okay. So Time Warped by Claudia Hammond. I will recommend that to you. Sounds good. Yeah, um, I had something else. Uh, not only that, but time, we, you know, we live here in Japan, we've mentioned before, and um, th things change so fast in Japan. Uh, it, you know, it's just every two or three years, it just feels like everything around you is completely different. Some things, um, yeah. Yeah, well, cer well, certain things, like the the things tourists come to see, like the temples, and they're, they're there forever. They're always the same. But uh, now... <laughs> in the in Japan's like attempt to not ha not have you deal with another human person ever um in <laughs> convenience stores there, there's no well the cashier is there but uh, they have like a sort of cash machine that you kind of feed money into like you're um you know ringing up they ring up the bill and then you have to put it into the machine and push all these buttons to uh pay for something and uh, the next step is just to take the cashier out of the process. You know, he's just going to be gone. And I guess you're just going to walk in there 
buy something and leave. It's I, I feel like it's very impersonal. I you know not too happy about it. <laughs> I don't know. Have you noticed Gradually, that? Yeah, we're becoming detached yeah. from other yeah. humans and contact. Not good, people. Although I tend to be like a it's not a loner type anyway. I kind of like being by myself. I, I'd much rather listen to CDs in my house than go to a concert, which is kind of weird because the music I listen to, mostly classical music, um, really came out of, um, you know, you know, gatherings. People would go out to hear music, to hear people play music. It was all about being together. Um, and even um, the string quartets from the uh, classical era, the era of Haydn and Mozart, when they wrote, when those composers wrote string quartets, they wrote them for families who would play them in their houses. Right. You know, um, and uh, that doesn't happen anymore. It's all for professional players now because nobody really plays like that I think anymore. In a full mm. spectrum, the shared nature of music has been really sort of extracted from the way music mm. is played and experienced in a modern time. But uh, yeah. let's hope that through yeah, the podcast, we're, yeah. we're sharing. Yeah, because if you're a musician, you learn from other people playing with That's other right. people. So, you know, because they know things you don't know and, you know, but the you technology, something and they pick it up from you, you know. I think there's new ways we can share things. And obviously, we've got people around the world listening to us and uh, hopefully discovering new music they may not have found before. So, you know, we can concentrate on the good aspects of the technology and environment with this. So, um, yeah, I think. There's some positives to the new technology too. And I hope that other things get back to more normal human interaction in the near future that we can see. Mm, so, I don't know. I think this might be, I think we might be heading towards that uh, transhumanism that uh, sci-fi writers write about. So oh God. we're going to be imagine, half robot and half yeah, uh, human soon. AI composed things we'll be listening to. Half of yeah. it sounds like that anyway in the pop music, but... <laughs> Oh well, yeah. Well, right. you still have classical and jazz. Um, th th this is one one good thing. If we, if we can manage to make this a, a living, uh, I, somebody had mentioned on a podcast I was listening to, uh, you know, AI they can get it to maybe you know do a lot of things, but they're not going to get it to host podcasts. So <laughs> I think we're um, we won't be we're replaced. Safe. We won't be replaced. We won't be replaced because no. we're personalities. <laughs> no pithy comments from the computer. You're right. No pithy comments. No jokes. Then I can be, you know. Anyway, all right, off we go. This week's uh, classical music selections, and they are almost all American composers. And uh, they are, well, no, they're, not, they're almost all American uh, performers too. This, this is not, not they're not all American either. Uh, my first choice this week is um, Randall Gooseby. He's a violinist, and uh, his album is called Roots. Uh, this album is released on the Decca label, and it. Um, Features um, Zhu Wang, a uh, Chinese pianist from China, Hunan, um, who Gooseby met at Juilliard, and the composer Xavier Dubois Foley. I hope I said that name right. I imagine he says it the. Uh, although he might not. Xavier Dubois. He might say Dubois because um, W E B Dubois. Okay. <laughs> he might be named after him. Um, Xavier Dubois Foley on double bass. I'll say Dubois because I'm guessing that he's uh, named after W.B. Dubois on double bass in his work, Shelter Island. Okay. Randall Gooseby is from San Diego, California. 
Okay, and he is um, now the important thing is his album is called Roots. Um, he has a uh, black father and Korean mother. It says here, um, so he's a mixed race, and here he is specifically uh, digging into the roots of his um, African American side, his his father's side. Incidentally, um, he, it says he has a Korean mother, but his middle name is uh, Mitsuo, and that's a Japanese name. I'm kind of wondering what the story is behind that. Very interesting. Um, he fo- Okay, so he's focusing on black composers on this record and also composers who admired black musical forms, namely Gershwin and Dvorak, you know, Anthony Dvorak. Okay, so on this album, we start out um, with um, a duet between uh, Goosby on the violin. I, I should have mentioned, I hope I mentioned he's a violinist. Okay, uh, and uh, Xavier Dubois Foley on the double bass. He's a composer and also a double bass player. And we hear um, Dubois Foley's um, Shelter Island. Okay, Foley is uh, 27 years old, a native of Marietta, Georgia, in USA. Not Georgia, Russia, Georgia, USA. <laughs> okay, and he met, this piece is really written for him and Goosby to play. Um, they met each other at the 2010 Sphinx competition. And Goosby won first prize there at 13 years old. Boy. And then they met again next year at the Perlman Music Program on Shelter Island. And that's, I guess, this piece is a memory of that. Shelter Island is in Suffolk County, Long Island in New York, by the way. Okay. The opening of this piece, it starts out with the uh, violin and the bass playing together. And um, it reminds me of the mechanical repeating phrase that opens Ravel's duo for violin and cello. Did you did you pick that up? Do you know that piece, Russ? The Ravel? I've heard it before. Yeah. yeah. I, right away, it just kind of got me uh, thinking of that. Yeah. Okay. yeah this, I like this one a lot. Yeah, it's not mechanical sounding here it's pretty much soulful but they do it starts out in the same mm-hmm. sort of repeating way that the Ravel yeah. does but then it sort of opens up uh, th- this work sets the tone for the entire program it's a very soulful piece and this entire CD is going to be very soulful yeah execution really is no- excellent and the interplay is great too it's a really nice yeah. bass work on the Shelter Island I mean obviously this is a showcase for Goosby's violin but uh, well it's for both of them really here the yeah, because you know later the piano uh, takes a major part in uh, accompaniment. But uh, yeah, Foley's bass here is uh, yeah really enjoyable. So I thought that that was a lot of fun on the Shelter Island composition. Yeah, this piece is well worth hearing. It's really enjoyable. Uh, the interplay between the two musicians is fantastic. Just the two lines kind of playing off each other, really fantastic. Um, it, it it gets into this. Um, this bluesy melody and then the Ravel sounding mechanical theme. I keep calling it mechanical. It's mechanical in the Ravel piece, but not quite here. Mm. But it reminds me of that Ravel um, piece. Uh, Duo for Violin and Cello, if you want to hear that, by the way. It's really great. Um, I really love this piece. It's a great opening. Uh, Shelter Island, check it out. Okay, next. Composer Coleridge Taylor Perkinson. Um, this is these are four three pieces for solo violin called Blues Forms. Now the title, um, it, it's the word blue, and then there's a slash and an S. So the, the idea being that it blue, so I guess blue notes or blue feeling, and then blues the musical form, the blues. Okay, so blues forms for solo violin. Uh, please, Coleridge Taylor Perkinson is not. To be confused with Samuel Coleridge Taylor, who we'll hear about, we'll hear his music later. An, uh, another 
black composer whose music we should know better. He's he's British though. Coleridge Taylor Perkinson is American. Uh, in fact, um, Perkinson's mother named him after the earlier British composer. He's named after Samuel Coleridge Taylor. So his first name, I guess, is Coleridge Taylor. Boy, that would be awkward. <laughs> I guess he had a nickname. Um, Okay, Perkinson was a 20th century composer, born in 1932, died in 2004. Um, he wrote in many genres, including classical composition, film music, and jazz. And he also collaborated with Marvin Gaye and Harry Belafonte. So he's been around oh. in some of the classic uh, yeah, eras there. Okay, Blues Forms is dedicated to the violinist Sanford Allen, who was the first African-American member of the New York Philharmonic. There are a lot of firsts on this uh, recording or a lot of um, references to firsts in, among black Americans. Okay. Let's see. The three movements are very brief, uh, but a fair amount of mo emotion is ejected into them. Uh, the booklet note tells me, it's, I've read the booklet note in the CD, that the work has elements of Baroque counterpoint, black folk music, and American romanticism. American romanticism would be, I guess, 19th century... Uh, what what would you call it? Just popular song, I guess. Okay, the the American take on the Romantic year in Europe. The first movement uh, is called Plain Blues with a slash. Okay, um, it's a deeply heartfelt piece. Uh, and Gooseby again, he's a fantastic violinist. He puts the emotion across beautifully, reminding us that blues comes from pain, and we hear a lot of that pain in this movement. Um, the second movement, just blues. Again, with the slash blue slash S, is more tranquil in tone with muted tones and pitch and impressive double stopping by Gooseby. In fact, we're going to hear him double stopping impressively in a lot of music on this um, album. He's, he's, he's really excellent. The third movement, Jet and Blues, um, is, uh, has more impressive double stopping as the piece moves on, ends on an, on an impressive high double stopped chord with a pizzicato to send us off very very nice set of works at this point you start to realize that Gooseby isn't your average classical violinist he gets the blues and jazz really well he understands that space is needed to put the, this music across and there's plenty he leaves plenty of space uh, in these works all of them really um, so this is really a fantastic performance all the way through yeah I, okay next this one I I thought it was somewhat interesting. The first two movements I was mm, kind of thinking about, but then the third one really hooked me. So the Jet and yeah. the Blues, I, it pulled me in, and I, I really enjoyed uh, that one more. Um, yeah. I think it, when you come, you know, blues, to me, the best blues of a type should be uh, sort of uh, simple and uh, honest mm. so that it's, it's very open. Uh, and when, when you sort of come at it, in a classical angle. Um, and there's too much to think about. Uh, yeah. I sort of think, oh, it's not the blues anymore. <laughs> it's not the blues, but um, I, I, I thought, you know, it didn't no fall of Gooseby's. It's sort of in the, in the composition. I was trying to figure out, okay, what's really, you know, being uh, aimed at in the compositions. And then once I got to the third movement, then I, I could uh, get, more of an emotional nature from it. And then I felt that Gooseby really got hooked into that one too. So um, yeah, that really sort of cemented it to me in the, in the final movement there. Okay. I actually like this one from the beginning. I was, I was pretty impressed by his playing throughout really. 
Well, I like his right. tone a lot. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, because, well, as I've said on previous episodes, we, we had very heavy violin uh, based music. Uh, violin can really get on my sort of nerves, <laughs> uh, gets the hair standing up. And uh, so it really depends on the player's uh, tone. And he has a really rich tone uh, that's good. And he doesn't have, uh, you know, there's a couple pieces here where he gets in that upper register and I'm thinking, okay, am I going to have to reach for the volume control and crank it down? But mostly not. Um, he, he keeps that really rich and uh, he doesn't get into any sort of abrasive squeakiness on his playing. <laughs> and throughout whatever register he's in, he has a really nice phrasing uh, right. too. And uh, so it's sort of has these, rounded edges uh, even when he's playing difficult passages a very lyrical uh, style that he has you know for a young player too so i found you know for me especially uh, a violin featured recording i'm ready to have this sort of uh, high register fatigue even early on but i didn't get that in this recording at all i found it you know you know easy to listen to Right, I had. I guess I, my whole experience with the violins. I dated a violinist long ago. So me too. Yeah. So, oh yeah. But I kind of. Yeah. I don't know. I guess I kind of got. You know. I kind of. It, it's really funny because I noticed that most of my violin recordings are by uh, women violinists, and I kind of wonder if, if that's not saying something about oh how I still I'm still thinking about this person. You know. So, it might know. be a therapy session for that or something. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, maybe. Uh, maybe that maybe my whole massive. Classical CD collection is just one big therapy session. It's for a string like, thing, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, well, there it is. I it's laid it on the table there. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, by the way, if anyone wants to start a uh, Mike's, Mike, Mike's, you know, a, a, th- a podcast where you want to, like, uh, explain my whole psychological, my, psych- my <laughs> state or something like that. Be my guest. I'd love to know what's wrong with me. <laughs> okay. All right. Anyway, onwards. Four tunes from Gershwin's opera Porgy and Best Follow, arranged by Yasha Heifetz, of all people. You can kind of hear the Heifetz influence in this. And this is the first time we hear a Zhu, Zhu Wang on the piano, Wang being her family name. Uh, or his fa- Sorry, I'm sorry. His family name. It's a man. It's a man. Jeez. Okay. <laughs> That's pretty bad. Bad mistake there. Okay, Zhu Wang. His um, family name is Wang. Okay. All right. Um, this is the first time we're hearing Gooseby in familiar repertoire on this album. So, and we have, and he has an appealing way with this repertoire. Um, he and Wang give the jazz melodies a lot of space to breathe. And uh, this, this really impressed me because I already, from the previous set of works, I knew that uh, Gooseby had the jazz in him but wang plays these really really well he's he's got a really good jazz feel in the in these pieces which which rather surprised me and nice uh, phrasing these, here that's what i thought yeah um, you know you know these gershwin pieces so it all comes down to to me how they're going to be interpreted and that's all dependent on the phrasing and yeah i thought it was right. you know just you know really good excellent phrasing and interpretation of it yeah, the four tunes they do is Summertime, A Woman is a Sometime Thing, It Ain't Necessarily So, and Bess, You Is My Woman Now. And I wrote that there's a beautiful moment in It Ain't Necessarily So where the melody is played on the violin's harmonics. That really kind of got me. Mm-hmm. And he, it's only, he only does it once 
and then it's gone like magic and he doesn't play it again. Like, so you, you're left with that memory of this amazing thing that you heard. Uh, Gooseby tosses it off so effortlessly that it made me catch my breath. I liked it a lot. Okay, nice arrangement by Heifetz there. And the faster scat section in that piece doesn't lose any of its jazziness. It's really good, not least because of Wang's playing. He's really fantastic. Um, so I like this, uh, this accompanist as well. All right, next we get into some um, uh, black compo black American composers uh, who are getting a bigger um, sort of profile these days. Um, their music is being played more often. The first is William Grant Still, and he was a major figure in American music, especially in American, um, well, I, I guess you could say American classical music, because uh, he was born in Mississippi and grew up in Little Mark, Little Rock, Arkansas, and he's often referred to as the Dean of African-American composers. Now, his music has been recorded really, you know, I remember recordings coming out in the 80s, but not very many. Um, they, they were almost like, uh, just, just sort of like these, these little teases that never really kind of went on to anything else. And he wrote a lot of music. He lived from 1895 to 1978, and he's considered to be part of the Harlem Renaissance of the 1920s and 1930s. Um, this was a time when, uh, there was a big art movement, not just in music, but painting and um, sculpture and all sorts of things like that. And in fact, these particular works by Still um, have to deal with uh, some of the artists from the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, William Grant Still had a lot of firsts. He was the first African-American to conduct a major American symphony orchestra, the first to have a symphony performed by a leading orchestra, the first to have an art an opera performed by a major opera company, and the first to have an opera performed on television. Okay? The first black American composer, African American composer. Uh, his first symphony, the African American Symphony, the Afro American Symphony of 1930, was the most widely performed symphony composed by an American, any American, until 1950. Uh, I actually don't know what took its place. Probably, uh, I don't know, maybe something by Bernstein, but I don't think he was, I don't know, what, what he was question. doing at then. Yeah, I'll have to look that up. Okay. Okay. Still composed over 200 works, and we've heard hardly any of them. Here we get the Suite for Violin and Piano from 1943, so that's during the war years. Um, the the entire work, this is not a well-known work, okay? He's got a few works that are fairly well-known. This is not one of them, and uh, it's nice to hear it, to hear it here. Um, the entire work is nicknamed Mother and Child after the second title of the second movement, and each of the three movements is named after a sculpture. The first one, Richard Richmond Barthes, African Dancer. Uh, the second movement is named after Sergeant Johnson's Mother and Child sculpture, and Augustus Savage's Gamin, G-A-M-I-N, uh, sculpture is the third movement. You can uh, look at pictures of these three sculptures on uh, online. All three sculptors were major players in the Harlem Renaissance, the period from 1918 to the mid-1930s. Okay, this um, African dancer starts with imposing octaves on the piano, some quick scatty figuration in the outer sections, and a slower bluesy middle section. And again, Wang and Gooseby are magnificent here, especially with the multiple stopping and quick figuration that Gooseby has in his part. The slow movement, Mother and Child, is the longest also, and uh, it's tender, searching, uh, the melody reaches a powerful peak in the high register. Gooseby's playing is very moving here, so he's able to really put that emotion across. 
And he makes this movement in particular memorable, and this, this is the one you're going to remember. I guess that I guess that's generally the case with this piece. He creates some breath-catching moments of beauty in the score via his pacing and dynamics. Like he sort of times things out really well that you're kind of like, wow, okay, it's uh, it's a lovely movement. And the relatively brief gamin movement um, has an insouciant quality to it, like. No, no cares in the world, full of bravado, and a tinge of jazz, jazziness in the melody. Uh, this is probably the best ever recording of these three movements or, or of this work. Okay. Now, if you've been following the uh, American music recently, Florence Price, um, another black American composer, um, has really come to the fore lately. Uh, a lot of her music... Um, was almost lost in the demolition of her house <laughs> you know, after she died. Um, the uh, people working on the house kind of found all of these scores, and I guess they were saved before the house was demolished. If it was demolished, I'm not really sure what it would eventually wound up happening to it. Um, in this case, um, she we're hearing just short pieces by her, her adoration for violin and piano, and her two fantasies for violin and piano. We will hear a longer work by her later in this in today's uh, program okay now she's really famous most famous for her symphonic music and concerti they've been widely played in recent years really because of these discoveries um, a little bit about her she was a composer pianist and organist and teacher and she was born in Little Rock Arkansas remember where William Grant still grew up and she's also she's in a mixed race family her father was the only African American dentist in the city and her mother was a music teacher uh, the family was respected in the area despite the racial issues of the time. Uh, interestingly, uh, much of her music was almost lost in a scheduled demolition of her former home. I'm reading from notes now. Apparently, some of it was, in fact, lost, but a good amount was rescued. Uh, Price had a successful career as a composer, but after her death, her work was forgotten as new styles emerged. And, uh, yeah, in fact, she's kind of in a... She, she's definitely not in a modernist style. She's really much, very much a romantic... You know, American romanticism and also a composer with uh, black American influences. Uh, she's been rediscovered recently due to the new American interest in the work of black American composers. Uh, her music is very easy on the ear and sounds uh, mostly European with some blue notes suggesting her southern U.S. roots. At least in this case. I wrote that hearing this uh, recording, but uh, the quintet, her piano quintet, which we'll hear later, is a different story. I'll talk about that when we get to it. Okay, so we hear the adoration. Um, this is a pretty, it's a winding vocalese type melody, very pretty. Fantasy number one starts with loud chords and dramatic melodic flourish on the violin, sort of like Beethoven's fifth piano concerto. It kind of has these big chords that the violin sort of solos over. And then, you know, except that in the piano concerto, it's the piano. Okay, and then the uh, main section begins. It switches from a fast southern country dance melody and a blues-tinged slow section. The slower section reminded me of passages from the slow movement of Dvorak's New World Symphony or his American String Quartet. There's a lot of uh, Dvorak influence in Price's music, or rather, there's a lot of black American melodic influence in both of their music. It's really hard to say, you know, what, but um, Dvorak was the, we'll get to him in a moment, but he was really the person who encouraged American composers to use um, music that emerged from the American soil, like Black American music or uh, Native American music in their symphonies, because that would make it a true American music, he believed. 
Okay. Uh, anyway, fantasy number two, the other piece, starts with a piano solo, and then the main melody comes in on the violin. This work is mostly slow and musing. Um, these are intimate works of Florence Price. They're well worth hearing. And we, then we go to Samuel Coleridge Taylor, the very famous British composer. He's got an interesting story as well. His father, okay, he's uh, mixed. He's mixed race. His father was descended from. Now he's British. Remember, his father was descended from African American slaves. Okay, so in the in America, who were freed by the British and evacuated from the colonies during the Revolutionary War. So the British kind of freed some of the slaves, I guess, that were around them in New York and places like that, and took them back to England and set them and freed them. And so Coleridge Taylor's um, family after the war, sort of grew up in England. Uh, Coleridge Taylor was widely celebrated during his lifetime, and he was especially admired by black Americans, as we've seen with, uh, you know, Coleridge Taylor Perkins's mother naming her son after him. He died young of pneumonia at the age of 37. Uh, he's not too unusual. That Think about Chopin, Schubert, people like that. And uh, he collected and orchestrated what he termed Negro Melodies in his Opus 59 work. There are 24 of them in that. And this is going to be like a rich uh, treasure trove of uh, music that uh, Goosby and also later, we're going to talk about Isata, Kana Mason. Uh, they're both going to mine some of these works. Goosby selected an arrangement um, by the turn-of-the-century American violinist Maud Powell of Deep River for this recording. We're also going to hear it in its original piano transcription later. Uh, he has a really good feel for this. The bluesiness of the melody comes out uh, really well. Uh, the arrangement is impressive and showy in the middle section. And the melody is so catchy that imagine it brought the house down when it was played in this arrangement. It's really nice. So that's all we have from Coleridge Taylor on this recording. Last, we have Dvorak's Sonatina in G Major for Violin and Piano. Opus 100, written in 1893, the same year as the New World Symphony and the American String Quartet, both well worth hearing. Now, everybody knows the New World Symphony, I think, but probably not everyone has heard the American String Quartet, and please make sure you hear that. Opus 96, I believe it is. Uh, it's so catchy. It's so good. String Quartet number 12 in F major. Uh, one of the best string quartet, one of the catchiest string quartets you'll ever hear. All four movements are absolutely fantastic. Anyway, we're hearing the sonatina for violin and piano here, which is similar. And I think it's fitting that this work uh, concludes the album, concludes the album, because Dvorak said back then, in 1893, that the future mu music of America must be founded on what he called Negro melodies, because they were a product of the soil and were therefore American. Okay, the, sonat the sonatina reminds us of these uh, Dvorak melodies and also what we've just heard in Florence Price. Uh, puts us into the world of the New, the new World Symphony. Uh, musical gestures all have that similar lilting blue melodies that we hear in the string quartet in particular, with some figuration in between. Okay, he seemed to have a handful of these melodies in his ear, these kind of black American melodies, um, from working at the conservatory, and he used them freely in a lot of the works that he wrote in this era. The slow second movement is highly reminiscent of the American Quartet's slow movement, and the flavor of black folk song melodies inter interspersed with clever accompaniment and beautiful figuration. The third movement, Scherzo, is cheerful and lively, and the final movement has a rollicking, carefree quality. And we're finished with this album. I found this deeply satisfying all around. Fantastic playing by Goosby. It's an excellent showcase for him. 
and uh, he's he's really at home in this music. He plays it exceptionally well. He's got a beautiful tone, uh, excellent sense of pacing. I'm really looking forward to hearing more from him. I want to see what he does with the classical repertoire as well. Highly recommended. Yeah, this is one that's um, an easy listen because of the strong melodic element in all these works, as you say. Yeah. It the, That's the common thread that runs through them. These melodies that are really influenced, you know, by American music and uh, Black musical experience. And so they're sort of, even if you haven't heard them before, there's some familiar element with them. And that sort of uh, really allows Gooseby's phrasing, which is one of his strong points and his really nice tone to shine uh, through them. And so it's a showcase for, you know, his sort of strengths as a performer. And then, you know, this sort of, uh, kind of yeah. selection of American music or American inspired music in the case of Dvorak. So, um, yeah. yeah, that's the, the sort of sets a theme that, uh, runs through there and sort of gives you a thread to hold on to in there and these uh, strong melodies. And so it's a really enjoyable album and uh, nice interpretations, good playing and, uh, nice sonics on this recording too. And yeah, I think it, Pretty much, I can't imagine anyone not liking uh, spending an hour listening to this one. Right. I thought it was really bold also of him to just start with uh, a new piece, you know, and then go to the more familiar as as the album went on. I think it was a, yeah, that's true. But I, I think, you know, with, you know, as it gets a little bit more, well, it's not really traditional in the sense, but the, the first piece, especially with, you know, the, the nice bass work on that, is this very contemporary feel to set the mood before it gets a little bit more traditional in there. And yeah. uh, so you can maybe hook different type of listener into the being committed to getting through the whole uh, experience there. But uh, yeah, overall um, I, I, I can't argue with the ordering or, or sequence of the works in that sense. Uh, and uh, it'll hold you right through to the end and uh, be very satisfying. Okay, our second classical recording of today is uh, a set of American quintets um, by the Kaleidoscope Chamber Collective, and this is on the Chandos label, the British label. And uh, all of these works on this are are all from the first half of the 20th century. We have uh, two women composers on this, Amy Beach, and again, uh, Florence Price. We just talked about her on uh, Randall Goosby's album. Okay, uh, both of the whose works for violin and piano we've just talked about, right? Um, so we're going to hear two kind of bigger works by them. Um, they're piano quintets, multi-movement piano quintets, and they uh, they're on either end of um, a piece by uh, Samuel Barber. His work Dover Beach for string quartet, and it says here medium voice. It's usually performed by a baritone, but in this case, it's uh, a bass voice that we hear. Uh, it's sung by uh, Matthew Rose. Uh, he's a bass. I wonder if he's related to uh, Gil Rose, friend of the podcast Gil Rose. I wonder. It's a pretty common name, though, so it's hard to say. Anyway, he's right the here. bass player here. Okay, so the so the uh, program has these two bigger works by uh, women composers and the one movement uh, work um, by um, 
the 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 male barber with a male vocalist in it. it kind of makes like a nice uh this program makes a kind of a nice uh, man sandwich i guess man you can sandwich. say it's a man sandwich every okay. man likes a good sandwich yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> oh make me one oh no uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> all right anyway <laughs> okay so uh we, we never grew up. That's what happens when you listen to music your whole life. Anyway. All right. Who, who are we calling adults here? Who are we fooling? Anyway. It's our listeners, not us. It's- yeah, it's our listeners who are adults, not us. There you go. All right. Uh, okay. The, okay. Oh, by the way, I should mention Barbara's uh, work is um, Dover Beach. Is, it's a setting of the poem Dover Beach by the English poet Matthew Arnold. Okay. The program begins with uh, Amy Beach's uh, Piano Quintet. Okay. This is it's the earliest work here. It was written in 1907 and has had quite a few outings on record. In fact, uh, the most recent one before this is paired with Elgar's uh, Piano Quintet, and it's up for a gramophone award in the chamber music category this year. That's on Hyperion Records, and it features uh, Garrick Olson on piano and the uh, Tawkach Quartet in the string quartet part. Okay, so this is an even newer recording. I can't really compare the two because I ha- actually haven't heard that one. We're gonna have to give that a listen before we talk about those um those works. This is okay. really uh, Brahm Brahms Brahmsian. Yeah. 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 Okay, that's Influence right away here. that jumps out. It's very it's a bit histrionic too, although not in not so much in this performance. So I'm kind of curious <laughs> to hear what the Tokach uh, quartet did with it. Um, I'm gonna have to go to that soon. Uh, I just, yeah, you just, okay. It's, this is in three movements. Uh, the first movement rises to a high passion, reminding me of, yeah, early Brahms chamber works. Also a Franck's piano quintet, Cesar Franck. Mm. If you know that work, it's, uh, it's, it's very histrionic. It really hits some shrieking sort of, uh, crescentic sort of, uh, you know, climaxes there. There's some lovely haunting passages between the emotional peaks and this piece, this movement, or at least this piece, sounds like it takes some effort to perform. It's, it requires some virtuosity, I think, especially from the pianist. Uh, the Kaleidoscope uh, Collective beautifully puts the work across. The second movement begins with, in, in, quietly in a dusky 19th century American song sort of way. Also builds to a passionate climax about two-thirds of the way through. And the third movement starts in a compound meter, which I'm guessing is 6-8. I haven't seen the score. Uh, with a sort of fragmented winding melody. Uh, this composer likes highly passionate climaxes. Played. I could say something about this, but because of your joke, I'm not going to. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I want everybody after us. Uh, the passionate climax is played in octaves by the strings here, and we get more in this movement. Okay, there's a good amount of varying material and lovely ideas throughout the work. It's very enjoyable. You can hear why it's been recorded uh, fairly often. I, re- I even remember hearing recordings of this on the old British ASV label back in the 1980s when I was first really starting to seriously listening to classical music it's an enjoyable work and uh, because I've been hearing it all my life I, I every once in a while I get more out of it each time I hear it it's very appealing it's not a terribly light listen but it's not hard it's it's familiar you know, okay it's it's kind of weighty and it's good yeah so am I gonna make the joke about multiple climaxes because there seem to be a lot of them in that in that work I kind of wonder well, uh, I think multiple climaxes are are enjoyable especially if you have a delicate second movement like this piece does which was my you know the 
the most intriguing one to me. So yeah, yeah, yeah. She had an interesting. Yeah, kind of. It makes me think about her whole. She she had a husband who, of course, didn't really want her performing in public, but he eventually died, and she wound up going to England and uh, trying to promote her music. So I don't know. Maybe it has all those climaxes have something to do with that. Anyway. Barbara's Dover Beach clocks in at less than eight minutes, so you don't get much man in this um, in this recording. <laughs> okay, it's only a single movement. Uh, it's a this is a pretty subtle performance, and it sounds different than other performances of this work I've heard. It's it's fairly well recorded. Um, he wrote this, I think, when he was a student at uh, Curtis Institute um, in the '30s. I seem to recall. Um, this performance has a lighter touch. Usually this, the poem is pretty dramatic. And, um, I think that the ensembles that play it usually try to get a, um, sort of, um, real pathos or, you know, emotion out of it. They, they play it with a kind of heavy, they kind of go pretty heavy on it. But this, um, ensemble like sort of breezes through it with they have a nice light touch and i think the work benefits from that it doesn't quite register as dramatic as the poem is but i think we hear the whole form of the piece really well and i liked um rose's um voice it had good presence and it was a heavy bass like i think we usually hear a baritone in this but the bass anchors the text really well while the um the lighter with the lighter kind of accompaniment the tempo is fleeter than other performances, and I think that helps too. This is kind of an interesting uh, interpretation of this work, and I would encourage you to hear it. It's a little different than what we're used to if you've heard this work before. Um, they underplay the um, heaviness of the poem's theme, um, which is about sort of like, I guess, the pointlessness of life, I guess. Like you can sort of sum it up like that. Maybe you don't want to hear that at this yeah, time in, in history this is my least favorite of the of the selections on this one so i'll leave well, it at over, that yeah it's over pretty quickly mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway i like it though it's a good work um all right last we have uh another florence price work and this is a bigger one this time this is her four movement piano quintet this clocks in at about half an hour um, she wrote two of these, two piano quintets, and the better known one is uh, the other one, the one that's not recorded here. This particular one was probably earlier of the earlier of the two, and it was also, this is a premiere recording. It was found in um, that, um, that house that was scheduled for demolition, so it's just been uh, unearthed and here performs from the manuscript, apparently, where the manuscript was re- recently made into a, like a readable score for the um the musicians. It's late romantic in style, but celebrates Price's African American heritage with echoes of hymns and spirituals in the second movement, and elements of the Juba stomping dance that originated on slave plantations in the deep south, and you hear that in the third movement. The first movement also has a bit of a breeziness uh, of um bluesiness to it as well, sort of in that Dvorak vein that we were thinking talking about earlier. It or it I shouldn't really say that because Dvorak kind of got it from black music. So ultimately the source is those those melodies um, that uh, Dvorak and Price are borrowing from. Uh, the brief fourth movement has a rolling pace and ends with a lot of momentum. It's a really good. Overall, the work is spacious and warm, considerably calmer than Amy Beach's. And in fact, I like this one better than the Amy Beach, but it's probably because it's the first time I'm hearing it. And it's just kind of new and fresh. It's got a lot of memorable material, well worth hearing. Anyway, this is a, another winner of this album. I liked it a lot. 
Yeah, like this, I thought it's an interesting mix of this kind of late romantic style, but also the the themes of the melodies are very American yeah. uh, and identifiable. Mm-hmm. So it's th- those kind of combination of romanticism and American themes make it very endearing. Uh, yeah, and well, so especially to it, our ears, right? Yeah, it, even though I hadn't heard it before, I was drawn into it because of the, you know, that kind of mix of, of things so it really pulls you in and and it, it sounds familiar even though it, for me I, I hadn't heard it before okay on we go to uh the last uh, classical recording another um this is by uh the in- english pianist uh, isata kane mason and it's called summertime after the uh, gershwin song from porgy and bess i wanted to get this one in this was going to, we were originally going to do this one in August, this album, because, you know, of the title, but I'm glad I managed to get it in before uh, summer ends. So we, we did get it in in just the in summertime. It's really doesn't, this album really doesn't have a summer theme. It's just the name. Okay. So Isata Kane Mason is a pianist. Oh, by the way, this album is on the Decca label. Okay. Also on the Decca label. She's from a musical family. And I think of them as sort of like the uh, Chung family of South Korea, like Kyunghwa and Myun Wung, who are very older now, but very famous in the um, classical music uh, world. Also the Kwijkin family from Belgium, although they're a multi-generational musical family. The, the the musicians in this family are all the same generation. She she has a lot of brothers and sisters, and uh, some of them are famous. Her brother, Sheku Kanemason, is a cellist, and he's probably the most famous person the most famous of them all, but I think you're going to be hearing from a lot of them as uh, the years roll on. They're both, they're all very young at the moment. All right. So her parents are Stuart Mason, who is a luxury hotel business manager from London and Kadiatu Kane from Sierra Leone, a former lecturer at the university of Birmingham. Now I read in a note somewhere that her father was from Sierra Leone, but I don't think that's right. It seems that the, her mother is um, from Sierra Leone. So she's, um, Anyway, that's the way it goes. Because notes get all confused on the internet. I don't know what what's true or anything. All right. So anyway, um, Isata Kane Mason. This is her second album that I know of. She released an album of works by Clara Schumann last year. So she likes to do uh, music by uh, women composers. All right. So I think we're going to be hearing a lot more of those. And there is a lot of music by women composers out there. And not all of it's um, recent. There, there's a lot from the 19th century that just doesn't get an outing. So um, she did that last year. This album is released on Decca, and it's an eclectic program of classical jazz and blues-influenced works by American composers with uh, the odd Englishmen like Samuel Taylor Coleridge sneaking in at the end. First, we hear two Gershwin arrangements. He's always around, isn't he? Made by the 20th century virtuoso pianist Earl Wilde. I've never been a fan of these um, arrangements, but she makes a good case for them, I think. This is Summertime and I Got Rhythm, okay? There's some impressive virtuosity here. That's really what Earl Wilde was all about. Um, the I Got Rhythm, I feel like, is way too busy. But she she brings out the rhythm really well and all the uh, technique is there. It's just it's It's pretty uh, impressive playing. If if not if not an impressive taste, mm-hmm. <laughs> good old Earl Wild. Let me tell you, not not that's not saying anything bad about Isata Kane Mason's taste. I was referring to Earl Wild there. Um, Kane Mason, we hear her 
here she has a really hard clear and even percussive sound it's a sharp attack and every note registers when she plays which is a good thing it's nice but it's, it's not terribly soothing <laughs> i'd say <laughs> she'd probably be really good in the bartok piano concertos which are very percussive works i'd really like to hear her in those or in his solo piano music in general i think that would be a good uh, avenue for her to explore okay this this sort of um hard sound gets a bit wearing to be honest um, next we hear Samuel Barber she's getting into some serious classical music here there's Nocturne in homage of the Irish composer John Field and uh, he's um, famous for because his Nocturnes inspired Chopin so that's why we know him really um, then we have the, the big intellectual work on this album Barber's uh, Piano Sonata in E flat minor written for and premiered by Vladimir Horowitz the greatest pianist of the 20th century arguably some people would say, not arguably. Uh, she's pretty careful on this work, and she articulates every note, making this dense work that relies more on musical gestures and melody comprehensible. This is not a work I've really ever liked, and I, I kind of got it a little bit more. Maybe it's just because I have more experience and I'm older now, too. But this performance kind of clarified a lot of the uh, uh, sort of levels of... Um, the harmonic things and the the, the, the melodic material the level that are going on. Actually, there really isn't any melody in this work. It's mostly motifs. And it's a semitone motif that's uh, building up the yeah. uh, melody in the way Beethoven is. That's sort of hard on the ear. She plays okay. this really well, yeah. It, she does, but, yeah. But it's, I mean, and that's a task because it, it it's a really busy work that yeah. it, it, it puts a burden on the listener to get through this. But I think she charts the map through it pretty well as well as i've heard and makes it kind of accessible uh but it's a it's yeah. a tough it's a tough one to uh, to uh, follow right. through yeah and because you think of samuel barber too and you think you don't really think of him as being you know because you think of the adagio for strings or things like that yeah. you know and uh this is really in a, a whole different uh type of work um i've heard this played by uh mark andre amlan and uh that was not an easy listen mm. uh this one wasn't either but again yeah i think uh, her heart attack serves her well here okay she kind of clarifies a lot of the material for me mm -hmm. all right um yeah she's especially impressive in the contrapuntal percussive fourth movement i wrote there after that oh we get a little relief more gershwin follows this time a piano transcription of the man i love Arranged for concerto performance by Percy, sorry, not concerto, concert performance by Percy Granger, the English slash Australian composer. And then we get the three jazzy piano preludes, which I've always really liked. Uh, she, she gets the jazzy feel here very well. Again, that hard sound. And yeah, everything nice is articulated really clearly. Mm -hmm. Nice dynamics. Good, like, kind of like... Distinct, she distinguishes the levels between the accompaniment and the melody really, really well. Because these are very percussive works, actually, mm -hmm. especially the uh, first and third one movement. The second movement um, is is a lot quieter. And she gets a softer attack on this. I think she might be using the una corda pedal here. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's still a bright sound, though, in that, in that second movement. Um, I actually played that second movement. Uh, most uh, young pianists do. <laughs> young American pianists get this put in front of them. It's really nice. Okay, next comes uh, Amy Beach again. We heard her piano quintet in the previous recording. Uh, this is a, a really a piece of salon music by the Still Waters. It's a it's a quiet um, sort of um, 
tranquil piece. Um, we have the unicorda pedal here, certainly. Uh, she's using it for the quiet opening. Uh, this is a piece that really should be uh, not only played more often, but given to piano students. It's got an arpeggiated accompaniment with a nice melody on top. It really sounds like it would be an ideal student piece. Okay, it has a Moonlight Sonata quality, you know, the Beethoven first movement of the Moonlight Sonata uh, of arpeggiated bass with melody. Next comes uh, Copland's piece, The Cat and the Mouse. This isn't often heard, but it is taught to piano students. I've heard, I've seen it played live. And this is a piece I think that benefits from seeing it played because it's got like a, a, a mouse escaping from a pouncing cat kind of quality to it with the hands. Okay, like the hands are kind of like jumping on each other, sort of. So if you can see someone play this, it's kind of cute. Uh, listening to it, eh, it's okay. I, I don't really like this piece very much, to be honest. Um, it's fun. It's got a, it's, you know, it's a little um, sort of discordant to listen to. But it's more fun to see than to hear, I think. And then we end this whole program with Samuel Taylor Coleridge again. Okay, first we hear his impromptu number two in B minor. This is apparently the first recording of this work. Um, hmm. It starts with an, a kind of a pagiatura figure. A pagiatura is kind of when you're like one note above the chord and then kind of collapse down onto it. And uh, this sort of figure sort of is what the piece is built on. It's kind of a clever idea. Um, it's it's a nice it's a nice piece. Really well, well worth hearing. And the remaining pieces are all from the uh, 24 Negro Melodies. Again, that's the title of the collection. Okay. Deep River is heard again, and here in piano solo version. Um, the next piece is called uh, the Bambula. A Bambula is a type of drum made with a rum barrel with a skin stretched over it. It's also the name of the dance done to it. Uh, these days, unfortunately, it has become a racial epithet in French, so you might want to be careful about uh, where you're saying this, okay, this title. Uh, there's also a very famous piece um, by Gottschalk, Louis Moreau Gottschalk, the New Orleans uh, composer from the 19th century, uh, called the Bambula for piano solo. This uses the same rhythm. This, the Coleridge-Taylor piece uses the same rhythm. Uh, so it's kind of a it's kind of a fun piece. It kind of in that kind of uh, it's not quite like ragtime, but it's got that sort of um, that sort of dancey kind of rhythm to it. Mm. Um, let me see. And last, we have sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Really beautiful spiritual. Um, Coleridge Taylor wanted to showcase these melodies in the same way, in his words, that Brahms showcased the Hungarian melodies he heard in his youth. Dvorak did for Bohemian music. And Grieg for Norwegian music. So he wanted to uh, do the same for black American music. Um, Deep River, of course, is a beautiful melody. Here it's just simply laid out over arpeggiated chords that resemble guitar strumming. And then it's presented again in several variations. Uh, Bambula does the same. Um, it starts out with the rhythm and uh, a few variations. And... Uh, Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. The melody here is integrated into the accompaniment with chords, and the uh, melody's first appearance embedded in the chords uh, is really beautiful. It's a pretty gorgeous arrangement. Sounds like it'd be a little tricky to pull the melody out of those chords, though. Anyway, another enjoyable album. Um, you need to really warm to this pianist, um, the sound of this pianist attack. It's 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 a really very hard. It's like the opposite of somebody like, say, Murray Pariah, who has this kind of almost pearly sort of attack. I mean, it's to each his own, really, but it serves her well here. I think she chose this program really well, and I enjoyed this recording, too. What do you think? I like this one. Um, 
all the various pieces. Uh, I like, well, of the Barbaras, I like the Nocturne. Uh, I thought her touch worked well on that. Uh, the, the Barbara Piano Sonata, as you said, it's kind of busy. Yeah. Um, it's it's highly it intellectual, well. yeah. And I like yeah. the Gershwin interpretation with the dynamics um, and the beach. Uh, it's kind of placid feeling. Um, hmm. Like the, the Copeland, as you said, it's sort of a performance piece, but uh, the playful nature and the Coleridge Taylor pieces are gentle and nice. She has that unique attack style, but I, I appreciate this sort of um, uh, integration of, you know, sort of Americanism, uh, American influences into sort of uh, codifying you know, an American identity in classical music. Yeah. I think that's, you know, especially, you know, America dominating 20th century music in all sort of popular music styles um, and, you know, in, in classical music as well, even though many people may not be aware of it, but, uh, you know, from the various folk musics, um, African-American influences, and then, you know, the great, sort of uh, composers, even like, you know, Stephen Foster and these people who wrote these great tunes um, that people know or have heard, but where they get placed, you know, in sort of uh, a bigger picture of, you know, musical history and then uh, how they're developed. I, I think that's important. And so, you know, it's good to see all of that music sort of recognized and then developed uh and especially you know since european composers from early on had you know taken sort of pride in incorporating that folk music into contemporary classical works of the time and it's good to see you know recognition for the same ideas uh being done in american music and you know sort of uh, given respect in classical music too and uh, so I think it's important to get those, those traditions uh, recognized uh, from all elements in the folk music, uh, African-American music. And then here today we see the blues traditions recognized as, uh, you know, legitimate forms and then developed and interpreted, interpreted well. And yeah, so overall, I think it's a satisfying program and uh, yeah, a, a good focus uh, for these kind of uh, recordings with a common thread. Yeah. I want to say that the whole idea of putting folk melodies into uh, classical music was a big thing in the late 19th, early 20th century. This is really the period of all those uh, revolutions when uh, countries became sort of, um, you know, I guess governed by the people, you can say. This is it's really when the, the whole aristocratic class was finally, you know, the whole idea of like kings and stuff were just being gotten rid of. And the idea that the people and uh, you know the, the music arose from the people who belonged to the land yes. came from it's just, it's nationalism in its earliest guise. These days, nationalism has kind of like a negative um, <laughs> connotation to it. It's really changed. <laughs> the idea has not changed a lot. Not musical at all. <laughs> but at this time, people were trying to. Uh, yeah, it's not musical at all, right? But yeah, people were trying to kind of identify their country with the art and the music that was uh, being made by the. Uh, the people who were there An idea that's gone out of style now, but yes, we have a lot of great, uh, music and music that identifies, um, certain countries. I think of like, uh, you know, 
um, Finland with Sibelius, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. you know, Nielsen, uh, Vaughn Williams did it for England. Uh, there, there, there's so many really yeah. okay. of these national composers sort of. Yeah. yeah so. I guess it's hard with America because Bartok as well. Don't forget. For yeah. Bartok. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I guess it's hard with well. American music because everyone knows American pop music and, you know, uh, blues as you know sort of the pop influence of it so it sort of takes you know, one Co- remove Copeland tried to do it he was the one who really went that way yeah but and, I think it takes mm. it, it it takes sort of a you need to escape historically from it a little bit maybe now that we're in the 21st century right we can revisit and you know especially maybe the millennial generation is not familiar with uh the music in its original form and then to see it in, you know, sort of a new presentation can give it, you know, that sort of uh, new experience uh, in a different format. Um, To me, I mean, it's, it's nothing new, but I like to see it recognized and then, you know, given some legitimacy and then developed on, you know, in, in this different setting. So yeah, it's satisfying. Yeah. All right. So we're almost all American there. There we go. Almost all American. Well, into the. Now we've got an all American form of music. Yeah. In the jazz category. uh, Well, this, I have to say, uh, because we had a backlog of uh, things that I wanted to listen to. And then they just happened to be all become uh, available. So there's no real strategy here. I just picked uh, some different things that had become available that I was waiting to listen to. And they happened to be all American again in uh, one form or another. We've uh, sort of explored a lot of European jazz, uh, you know, Scandinavian things, uh, Italian music, uh, French jazz, but this week is uh, all American. And uh, it just happened to be some things that I was listening to. And I picked a variety of uh, instruments and things that had uh, come out that I wanted to hear because uh, it would be either new to me or uh, something that matched what uh, we focused on before. And so first up uh, is uh, an album called Obstacles by Pete Rodriguez on the Sunnyside Mm. Records label. And I wanted to hear this because uh, it's trumpet. And uh, as a trumpet player, I'm always uh, interested to check out some new recordings by names. And I wasn't familiar with uh, Rodriguez's works, but uh, reading his bio was kind of interesting. And I thought I wanted to uh, hear this album, but it took a while for it to get out uh, available on streaming. And then here it was. And so uh, this recording uh, features uh, Pete Rodriguez on trumpet, John Ellis, tenor and soprano saxophone, uh, Luis Perdomo, piano and keyboards, uh, another Rodriguez, uh, Ricardo Rodriguez on bass, and on drums, Rudy Royston, who we've heard uh, several times before on adult music. Uh, going back to episode 14, we heard him with uh, the Russian trumpeter, uh, Alex Sipiagin, and then more recently, episode 23, with uh, Art Hidahara's new release. And so, yeah, he's a really... Uh, exciting uh, drum player who gets things like the little fills that get in those slots uh, done really well. And so Rodriguez is uh, 
kind of a up and coming name on trumpet. Uh, and uh, he's got an interesting background. He was raised in uh, both the Bronx and Puerto Rico. Well, he's now uh, based in Austin, Texas. And uh, his uh, father is uh, kind of famous uh, Saucero uh, performer, Pete El Conde Rodriguez. And uh, so uh, Pete Rodriguez on trumpet came up through Latin music, but he's uh, firmly establishing himself in the jazz world with uh, not much of a uh, Latin influence on the music. And this uh, recording is kind of uh, maybe uh, a cathartic kind of uh, thing. There's uh, some interesting tunes. For him. Yeah, for him. Cathartic uh, for him, yeah. It, it's... Um, some interesting uh, compositions on here and the purposes behind them. Anyway, uh, it starts out with a tune called uh, 50, uh, which is uh, a tune to commemorate his own 50th birthday. And this is actually a contrafact, uh, which is a tune based on another tune. Uh, and so this one is uh, built over uh, John Coltrane's Moments Notice. Um, you know, so it's built over those chord changes in the structure. And uh, the tune starts out with uh, sax that's uh, then joined by trumpet on the angular melody, which is kind of uh, seems to be uh, very modern style uh, melodies on a lot of the tunes uh, that Rodriguez pens here. Ellis solos first, and uh, he got some nice structured melodies over the changes here. Uh, and uh, you'll get a real good sort of feel for uh, Royston's drumming uh, here, uh, the way he he puts his hits and fills between the gaps in what's going on uh, in any ensemble he's in. Uh, he's a really uh, great section player on drums. And then uh, when uh, Rodriguez comes in on his solo, the rhythm kind of changes up, and he really explores the uh, harmonies in uh, the backing of this tune. Uh, but he does it really in a fluid style, so you get a, a sense of his... Uh, sort of uh, trumpet style here. Also, this one has a nice uh, piano solo by Perdomo and uh, some nice rhythmic work in his solo here too. Uh, the second track is called Abraham. And uh, this is uh, a work based on the uh, works of inspirational speaker Esther Hicks. Uh, I guess was a... Oh, Abraham. Uh, oh, yeah, I know this. Yeah, yeah. Abraham, yeah. Anyway... <laughs> She channels these beings. Really, he names yeah, yeah, after yeah. her. And I didn't realize the, that when I was listening. Now I want to hear it again. Okay. Uh, kind of lush trumpet intro here before the bass and drums set a uh, slow groove on this kind of pensive uh, modal tune. Uh, everyone uh, plays a bit uh, on here. And then there's a break. And uh, Perdomo comes in with a new mood on Rhodes piano, uh, which is kind of cool. And uh, a little intro there and a solo. And uh, Ellis also solos, and uh, but Rodriguez lays backs on, on this one with just some uh, lyrical backing tunes uh, lines in here. Uh, number three on this album is El Proceso. Uh, we got a kind of rhythm section intro to the tune that has a lot of interesting different sections and meters. Uh, Rodriguez takes the first uh, solo on trumpet uh, here. He plays a lot of fast lines over the syncopated piano and bass backing. Uh, and then Royston really fills the gaps with really tight and tasty drum work here. Uh, Ellis switches up to soprano sax on this tune. And with we get some more Fender Rhodes piano here, which is cool. 
I just and, want to say uh, the Fender Rhodes throughout this album really was drawing my ear. I really like this guy's yeah. playing a lot. The sound itself doesn't often do anything for me, but the way he shaped it really kind of really pulled me in. I really liked the sound and his playing both in this yeah. case. Yeah, it's very tasty. Yeah. And um, then uh, the tune kind of goes out with a vamp on uh, that uh, Rhodes there too. And then Royston gets some uh, time to uh, drum away over the vamp. Uh Four is an interesting tune called <laughs> Academic Backstabbing. Um, apparently, uh, Rodriguez had uh, kind of a brief academic career, which uh, featured some uh, unsatisfying experiences. And uh, this tune uh, comes out of that. And it's what don't, uh, don't we know about this. Yeah, yeah, we know a bit about that. Uh, yeah. This sort of uh, yeah, nasty dweebs you can encounter in this world of academia. Uh, so this is a former mentor turned backstabber. Uh, it's a very short piece, only uh, two minutes and 18 seconds. Uh, and it's got a piano intro with some unison horn parts and then these piano clusters that are inserted into the short piece. It sounds piece. very academic, actually, the yeah. piano. Yeah, I think that's yeah. the idea. He's, uh, mm. he's using this uh, composition to... Uh, sort of work out some things, which is cool. How, by the um, way, how did you find out about these? Uh, these um, what they what these are about? I found it, yeah, a description this? of the, of the works um, on, uh, on uh, an album description page. Yeah, otherwise uh, I would have been uh, in the dark about it. So it was it. online. Yeah, okay. yeah online. I, I researched a bit on the uh, record label and some other things. Oh, cool. Uh, uh, five is uh, called Muritmo, uh, my rhythm. Uh, it's a really monk-like composition here. Um, and uh, Ellis takes a tenor solo first, and then uh, Rodriguez has a nice kind of measured trumpet solo that builds uh, his phrases. Uh, but he, what I like about the soloing on here is he has a lot of uh, pauses. It's a mature style. You get a lot of time to digest the melodic ideas that he has, and he has time to think and build upon them and progress the solo. Uh, he's not rushed at all through uh, his ideas. Uh, and then Perdomo also has a nicely spaced solo that uh, stretches out the rhythms in his phrases. And then uh, a short uh, kind of uh, bass solo by Ricardo Rodriguez, uh, but he walks through it kind of, he, he walks out of what's happening before and then into the solo. Then the ending rhythm phrases uh, change up into kind of a piano vamp. And uh, again, Royston gets some space to fill uh, with some drum uh, tasty things uh, until the horns come back in. Uh, the next track is triple positive. And this is a really nice slow groove that starts out with, uh, again, uh, chords on the roads and some bass fills. And uh, Rodriguez plays the rich flowing melody on trumpet and then Ellis adds some nice harmony just in spots. Uh, it's kind of a cool arrangement. It's really lyrical. Uh, the trumpet solos first, and he's got a nice contrast between uh, fast lines and then fluid things going on too. And Ellis keeps that kind of fluid style in his tenor solo. Uh, Perdomo comes in and mixes the lines with kind of rhythmic accented chords in his piano solo. And then he returns uh, to the melody flow to the end. Uh, number seven is a short, piece again called Austin and Ali. Uh, Ali, uh, I don't know if this is uh, a place reference, Austin, Texas, where he's based or not. It's only about two minutes long. Is, is he based there? Yeah, now he is. Yeah. So okay. uh, this is really a, 
a composed piece. There's not a lot of uh, improvising going on here, um, but it's got a, kind of alternating horn lines and complex rhythm uh, sections. Uh, and then sort of the mood changes up to a really kind of happy vamp. And then it goes back to the last section to the ending. So uh, it's a really short kind of statement piece. Uh, I guess he just had an idea for the composition that came through. Uh, number eight is the title track, Obstacles, uh, which is based on uh, Gigi Grice's Minority, uh, a tune that uh, people probably would recognize from uh, a Clifford Brown recording. Um, so the syncopation and pauses in the melody, it, it gives a real sense of motion through some type of obstacle course, sort of waiting to work around kind of things uh, and so it's kind of a, a fun composition. And Rodriguez makes a nice trumpet solo here. It gets a lot of tension uh, with repeated figures. And although it's uh, sort of uh, you know, a homage to Clifford Brown, the end of his solo is a really a Freddie Hubbard-esque kind of styling uh, here <laughs> that uh, you, you can't help but identify, which is really cool. Uh, and then uh, Ellis has this, solo on uh, sax coming here on a syncopated section and uh, then in here then the piano drops out and gives him a little bit more freedom and then the piano also has a nice solo after the sax uh, that comes into some more vamping for uh, Royston to get a workout on. Uh, number nine on here after that is called uh, Someone Else and this is another uh, nice Rhodes piece. Uh, the sound uh, sets the texture for the ballad Get a nice laid-back horn melody. It gives way to a really wood, woody bass solo that comes up first. And uh, Ellis is back on soprano on this one for a nice lyrical solo. And uh, also a good uh, Rhodes piano solo here, which uh, about three-quarters of the way through the tune, there's a break, uh, and the Rhodes sort of makes a restart, and the rhythm comes back in. And then Rodriguez takes his solo, and he really takes his time on uh, this one, he gets to build some interesting ideas. Uh, and uh, one of the things he does here, some really pretty things with just one repeated note. Uh, and he shows what you can uh, do with, you know, just a simple idea with one note and uh, varying the rhythmic attacks on it. And uh, this tune, uh, which doesn't happen a lot on jazz tunes, but it sort of fades out while he's still soling with some interesting ideas <laughs> you'd be tempted to turn up the volume and just see what he's doing uh, yeah why, why do they do that i don't know why they do that yeah, yeah. uh number 10 he, uh, he may have missed a note or something it, like it, it, you know, it could be yeah. coming up or something uh, you don't know. this is another cathartic uh, piece it's called mary dick ellen uh, which is described <laughs> in the notes i i read as a musical smudge on a former racist colleague uh, huh. And uh, so there's, there's kind of a mysterious piece. Is, less... is, is the word "dick" supposed to be uh, like some kind of uh, expletive, or I, I I have no idea. Uh, we can only guess. <laughs> How is it a name? <laughs> as a less than two minutes of uh, composition, it's it, it's really a rather uh, angry sounding collection of ideas um, before the piano sort of comes in with a groove, and then. You get some horn lines over that, and then it sort of suddenly ends. Uh, so I, I guess it's sort of a, a statement of sorts. And uh, it ends with another uh, sort of uh, cathartic message called F.U. John. 
<laughs> I guess we can interpret those. This is like a punk album. Yes. <laughs> and so uh, uh, here um, you get kind of a, a hectic rhythmic uh, figured horn melody that's over in a kind of ominous piano and bass line. Uh, the piano solo is first, and then Rodriguez comes in on trumpet, and the piano drops out on this one, gives him a lot of harmonic space to uh, work on some things here. And uh, then Ellis also comes on tenor, and behind him, the bass drops out, so it's just sax and drums for a while uh, before everyone comes back in, and it's kind of an ominous uh, tune. So, uh, yeah, overall, um, this is my first listen to uh, Rodriguez, but he's, uh, you know, he's He's got some uh, bite and things to say. He's He's got a mature trumpet style, and uh, he can give a variety of moods. There's some ballad playing here. Uh, he's got good trumpet chops, uh, creativity. Uh, he's got all original tunes here with some uh, different moods. And uh, I'm sure he's got a Latin music background, but he sort of firmly plants his foot here in uh, kind of, uh, you know, modern jazz idiom. And uh, the players are tight. There's some uh, good interplay between everyone. And uh, yeah, he's a player that I want to uh, look out for and, uh, and see what he does next. Uh, yeah, uh, despite the <laughs> kind of mysterious uh, pieces uh, to uh, take out his angst that I'm not so sure on the genesis of. Well, well why not? Uh, you know, if yeah. it inspires you, uh, do it. Sure. Yeah, not only that. I mean, why not? Uh, why not uh, have like a, an entire jazz idiom that goes in this direction? You know, it's just songs about people I hate or something like yeah, that. Yeah, why not? It's certainly yeah. been done in like you know punk rock and things like Taylor Swift's entire career is about uh, you know what she hates about her ex boyfriends. Yeah, yeah. Things like so, that, you know, I mean, why not than, jazz? It'd be cool. Let's make yeah, this like an adult thing. Yeah, but uh, okay. So on this record, I like the trumpet playing a lot, and I just want to say that yeah, like I said, the Fender Rhodes was really what. Uh, Pulled my mind. This guy's a really tasteful player, and um, there were there was a there were a few like when he gets sort of angsty, he gets into that you know like an academic uh, the, the the there were a few, there were a few other works like this academic backstabbing. Oops, I didn't mean to do that. Academic backstabbing one hundred and one, uh, where he gets into that sort of um, that Cecil Taylor type uh, you know piano playing, you know using all right. twelve notes and things like that. That that, that seems to uh, be an indication of something that he doesn't really like very much. Right, right. <laughs> you know? uh, or whoever's playing that. He's the he Rodriguez plays the trumpet on this. On the, yes, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so who's the pianist again? Uh, what's his Perdomo? Uh, Luis Perdomo. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm kind of wondering who came up with those. Yeah. You know, is that like his idea, or is that sort of laid out in front of him? I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Anyway, so it was kind of. I thought it was a overall a good album, but uh, it's there just a few pieces. I was like, now that I know more about what they were about, I kind of appreciate them. Yeah. More. But uh, yeah, I enjoyed this. Yeah. Good. Say. Yeah. I'm always. Yeah. I always want to hear new trumpet players, and uh, yeah, he seems to have his own thing going, and um, I'll be looking forward to you know, seeing what other uh, things he comes out with. Yeah. Uh, then, of course, uh, the next one, uh, this okay. one has been on my must-listen-to because uh, it just said organ trio. Yeah, and, I'm uh, like that, too. And I want to say, you just you just play into the, preaching to the choir here when you're yeah. putting up an organ trio record yeah. on this podcast yeah. anyway, because I'm a big fan of this. Yeah, we love Guitar organ. and organ together are really great. We yeah. love organ trio, guitar and organ. And this album yeah. is a real gem uh 
and uh, an yeah. incredible guitarist here and fine organist. And uh, I just, I just not- want to say, uh, by the way, Kyle Ash, right? It's uh, <laughs> It says the Kyle Ash organ trio. And again, on the cover, you got a guy with a guitar and you see the word organ. That kind of bugs yeah. me somehow. Yeah, it sort of bothers you. Uh, so Kyle Ash is... Because uh, people assume that a trio has a piano in it, but that's why they call it an organ trio. But right. he's, you know, he's a guitarist, yeah. So, yeah, Kyle Ash is... Uh, and, and this group is a Chicago-based uh, group. I guess they're more of a local... Uh, thing, but definitely they deserve much wider uh, recognition. Um, here we've got uh, Five Down Blues on Seller Live uh, label. And apparently they recorded this uh, last year in uh, March, uh, just going into the whole COVID thing. Uh, but they got it uh, laid down in the studio. So we've got Kyle Ash on guitar, uh, Pete Benson on organ and uh, Hammond B3 organ, and George Fudas on drums. And so uh, Kyle Ash, uh, Chicago-based, he began his uh, pro career uh, in the early 2000s in Chicago. And he's uh, appeared uh, extensively throughout uh, Chicago and beyond, uh, even performing with uh, Wynton Marsalis and uh, the Jazz at Lincoln Center Ensemble. And uh, this is just, you know, if you like organ jazz like we do, and we've featured a lot on this broadcast. We, we certainly uh, have. <laughs> this album is, uh, yeah. You got you to hear this one. Uh, it's a nice mix of uh, original and uh, other cover tunes. It starts out with uh, an Ash original, Five Down Blues. You're off to a really groovy start here. Uh, some great unison lines with the guitar and organ uh, that contrast with the uh, walking bass uh, on the organ pedals uh, in the melody here. Uh, and you, you get a real good taste of uh, Ash's fluid jazz chops right from the start here. Uh, It's a blues with kind of a twist uh, in the composition. Uh, Really nice backing by Benson uh, on organ here. He he builds a real bluesy solo of his own. Uh, He's got some nice outside uh, lines uh, going way in the harmonies that build uh, tension. And then uh, they both trade off uh, with the drums that here uh, extendedly before uh, they come back around to the head. Uh, second tune is Dorothy. This is uh, by uh, organist Melvin Rhine, who uh, played with Wes Montgomery, who is obviously a big influence on uh, Ash's style. Uh, this one is a Latin beat uh, that also has a con- contrasting section. Uh, you know, so you get these two uh, different beats throughout the tune and uh ash uh, really up uh, he he gets some of these uh montgomery style double stops uh, right at the beginning of the tune you know so you get that really cool sound uh and some great organ and guitar solos that work the tension and release of those contrasting sections here and then a kind of a latin percussion breakdown uh, after the solos uh track three is pretty eyes a horse silver composition and this is like a a minor six eight uh, horse silver tune. It has a nice, a little bit of a major turn in the melody that you know gives it a kind of appeal and contrast uh, with the beginning and end of the melody. Uh, the guitar and organ work together on the melody, and then Ash really busts into his solo with some heart attacks on this one. Uh, and then uh, Benson changes up the stops on the organ with some tonal variety that builds to a climax here. This is a really cool tune. Uh, four 
uh, Delirium by the uh, sax player uh, Harold Land. Uh, it's a fast swing. Uh, listen to the bass pedals on this one. I mean, his feet are really, really pounding out the bass lines here on the organ bass. And Ash comes in with a super fluid solo, uh, lots of creative melodic figures uh, that sort of finishes up with these amazing double stops. Uh, and then Benson swings along too. Uh, and Flutus gets a long drum solo on this one, a cool tune. Uh, we got another Melvin Ryan tune, number five, uh, Light Life Love. It's a slow ballad. Starts out with some uh, seductive bends by Ash on the guitar, some really thick bass uh, pedals and swelling chords from the organ to create the mood. Uh, you get this one, you better have your whiskey uh, nearby. <laughs> That's what I wrote, where's your whiskey? Uh, I was listening to this in the afternoon, but I felt like I wanted darkness in my uh, Knob Creek bottle one here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Benson's solo uh, beginning notes have that great organ articulation. It's just sort of that 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 kind of stuttering yeah. organ things. And he swells it in just the right places. He gets some Leslie here too. He changes up the stops. This to me, this is the organ showcase of the album. It's a fabulous solo. Uh, this tune track five. Uh, this is the pinnacle for me of the organ on this album. But then uh, Ash comes in again on his uh, fluid playing and uh, the finish is kind of bendy like the beginning too. Yeah. This, this track, <laughs> oh man. Yeah. This is like real, you know, if you like organ trio, man, you can just die and go to heaven on this track, right? <laughs> You'll be okay. Mm. Yeah. This was just kind of a, it was kind of, it was kind of an odd opening too. This is the one with yeah. the uh, guitar, yeah. the, the kind of bendy yeah, guitar. The bendy right? thing, yeah. 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 There is, yeah. This guy's a, a great guitarist. Kilter. Um, we've got three more tracks here, uh, kind of jazz standard by Livingston Evans, number six, Never Let Me Go. But it, the arrangement uh, is really cool. Uh, you know, normally this is done as sort of a, a ballad treatment, but this one has this really cool intro vamp. You won't know you, that th this tune is going to come up. And then the melody is kind of placed over that with sort of uh, interesting rhythmic ideas. So it's a very uh, creative arrangement of this tune. Uh, and really nice rhythmic ideas in the organ solo too. And Ash's solo has these really amazing liquid lines that uh, flow through, and then it goes to a funky ending uh, here too. So uh, yeah, nice treatment of this standard here, very creative. Uh, seven, uh, this is a great uh, title, Dirty Fingers by John <laughs> it's a Patton. great title for an organ, this is special. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. you get a kind of interesting descending riff uh, and a really alluring melody on this tune. A uh, really nice interplay between the guitar and organ on the melody. And uh, Ash has some great riffs and bluesy nuggets in his solo here too. And then Benson really gets his fingers dirty uh, with some really funky finger figures on uh, this one. So yeah, just a you know, perfect tune for uh, organ trio. And uh, the set closes out with another Ash original called Dig Deep. Uh, it's a nice swinging slow groove. A nice backbeat on this tune and uh, melody uh, is an original composition, but you'll swear you've heard it before. It's got that familiar quality and more great solos uh, all around. So uh, if you like organ trio, yeah, it's a fabulous recording. I mean, these guys are Chicago based. Um, I, I don't think they're well known outside of that, but uh, they should be. Um, 
you know, Ash's um, guitar playing is just top notch, really fluid. Uh, Benson's organ treatment is great in the way they play together. And the choice of material is uh, really good. This is, this is really second to none from organ releases. We've done a lot of organ stuff uh, here, but uh, yeah, this, these guys are really good. And uh, you, you, if you like organ, you got to hear this album. Yeah, I like this a lot too, right from the beginning. It, it had this great swinging quality to it, that great organ sound. And the guitar playing was fantastic oh, too. Yeah. This is really what's, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, that really, really made it for me. Like, you know, he's getting everything here. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like this all the way through, really, just one joy after another. Um, by the way, when we when we do our end of year, we'll we'll also do an end of year like our favorite recordings mm. of the year that we talked about on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> I mean, is the jazz going to be like you know the top five are all going to be organ trios, and then the other it five might just be. be. <laughs> it might just be. I think be, I got yeah. at least two organ trios on there for for that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm I'm really you know I saw this one and I didn't know Kyle Ash and. Uh, I was just, I was waiting, you know, I, when I saw it on a new release list, it was like not available, not available. I was like, when is this going to be available? So again, I had kind of forgotten about it. And then I saw, well, it's suddenly available. And then when I heard it, I was like, oh yeah, this was worth the wait. Um, so uh, this guy definitely, uh, as a guitarist, uh, should be more well-known, but I'm glad that he's focusing on, you know, the the uh, organ trio format because uh, yeah, there's, you know, when it's done right, that mix of just guitar and organ, it's just, uh, it's just perfect. And uh, yeah, great record. I'm going to, I hope yeah. this is on CD. I got to check this out probably. I yeah, really I'll definitely buy this one. To this. I'll definitely get this yeah. one for my collection. Mm. And uh, finally, um, you know, so this one I, I saw. Um, Rising Star. Someone who Rising uh, Star, the record companies like. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I usually like to stay away from these kind of things because, you know, I'd like to give our attention to things that other people might not notice, like the previous album. Uh, and, and so this <laughs> one think, is. See, my thought, though, is that I think most people aren't going to know much about what's going on in jazz in general. Yeah, probably. So, <laughs> <you know. laughs> um, so we've got the Rising Star and Prodigy uh, pianist, uh, Matthew Whitaker. And his new album just out uh, on resilience music called Connections. And uh, so maybe, you know, Matthew Wicker, if not, uh, he's a prodigy, a 20 year old pianist, blind, blind pianist. You know, it's really funny because I was listening to this record. I was like, you know, this guy, he's, there's, there's kind of a Stevie Wonder quality to him. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it, it, it turns out that he's blind too. I mean, this is a little too much. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's yeah. too much of a coincidence. As a matter of I fact, wonder, he, yeah. in one of his, you know, um, things is that he actually opened for Stevie Wonder at age ten, uh, uh, which boosted I bet his fame. There was a big influence there. Yes, and then yeah. he was also featured on sixty Minutes, his uh, story. So uh, he's got a you know a, a so lot of being rec- built up by yes. the uh, you know the the establishment, shall we say? Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, and fair enough. Uh, th- this kid has a huge talent, um, but also. I, I yeah, think definitely that, his prodigious skills are on display on this record. Yeah, Let's just say but that. I also think that uh, that um, recognition and then uh, the resulting uh, promotion and production is actually, you know, the weak point of this uh, recording, which I'll get to. Uh, not to slight his performance in playing anyone because yeah, the he's, kid he's is pretty uh, fantastic. Yeah, he's pretty fantastic. Uh, so uh, this album is produced by uh, bassist uh, Derek Hodge, and this also features. Uh, John Baptiste on piano on uh, one tune with uh, 
also guest uh, Regina Carter on violin. Uh, the rest of the tracks uh, feature uh, numerous drummers, uh, Avester Garnett, uh, Jonathan Blake, Otis Brown III, and Isaiah Johnson, bass, uh, Indea Owens, Kareem Hutton, percussion, uh, Nega Santos, guitar, Marcos Robinson, horns, uh, Steve Okindo, and flute, uh, Gabriel Garo. And uh, so it's a, a, a huge, almost too long recording of 16 tracks. Yeah, uh, it went on for quite yeah, a while. It goes on <laughs> uh, a bit too much, I think. Uh, and uh, anyway, I'll get to uh, sort of uh, overall analysis of that at the end. I'll go through them briefly. Uh, track one is called The Journey Uptown. Uh, this is one of uh, uh, Whitaker's original compositions. Uh, starts out with a kind of piano intro vamp. Uh, and then percussion. It sounds almost like marimba in here that comes in in flute. It's kind of a modal tune with a lot of rhythm change-ups that settles into a funky groove. It sort of takes you through some different paces of a journey, uh, maybe going through the city uptown. So maybe that's the inspiration for the title. Uh, number two is A New Day, another original tune. This is an upbeat swinging organ tune. So that's one of Whitaker's uh, points is that uh, uh, he's showcased here on acoustic piano, organ, and also uh, some synthesizer tunes. So he's kind of covering all the bases here of the keyboard world. Uh, this one, uh, organ, and uh, I like this one. It's a nice shared melody uh, with Robinson's uh, guitar. And then the rhythm shifts uh, from swing uh, to straighter uh, rock kind of in sections. So it's one of those tunes that has these contrasting sections. And then uh, Whitaker uh, shows off his organ chops here, and he gets a really big sound to climax his solo. Uh, number three is uh, by uh, Thelonious Monk tune, and this is an acoustic piano duet with uh, Jean-Baptiste. And they have fun with this. They mix up the rhythm changes, uh, the rhythms uh, and, and the, over the changes, and they play some, uh, they have fun with dissonances and sort of long chromatic lines, and they're cheering each other on, and, uh, you know, there are uh, vocalizations and things are recorded here too. They're just kind of having fun with it. And so uh, it's kind of a playful uh, rendering of this monk tune. Yeah. Uh, now he's changing um, instruments on every recording too. Like he plays, he yeah. plays the, on journey uptown, he plays the piano and then on the new day, he's on the organ. And I, I forgot what, and Baez, John Baptiste on the, Baptiste on the, on the piano. Yeah. But, they're uh, both on piano on this Baptiste, one, right? They're both on piano on this one. But yeah, so he's really showing off what he can yeah. do on this record. Yeah. It's pretty obvious that he wants to show his ability here. Yeah. And uh, yeah. track four is uh, Spain, the Chick Corea tune. Uh, but he does a kind of a little uh, Rodrigo uh, intro here on organ. Uh, and uh, you know, so, you mean the composer Rodrigo? Yeah, the, uh, composer the, Rodrigo. The, yeah, the concerto there and yeah. yeah. So it's a concerto uh, opening, uh, and then he turns that into kind of a gospel-y thing uh, before they get to the uh, kind of head of the Korea tune, uh, which also is done in really a synthy and then electric piano kind of sound. Uh, but interestingly, he takes the melody kind of into a halftime slow. Uh, exposition for effect mm -hmm. in some spots, uh, which was kind of an interesting idea. Uh, and then he uh, switches over on electric piano uh, and solos on this over the kind of thumping uh, Latin groove in the uh, percussion and bass. 
Then he brings the organ back in again for a little bit of backing and then at the end of the tune. Uh, I thought this one is a bit uh, overproduced and I could sense like kind of a compression in the recording of this tune. So the production of it sort of, uh, you know, kind of, kind of was uh, drawing away from my enjoyment. of. Yeah, uh, it uh, didn't come one. across as like a live, no fully live performance. It sounded like it was multi-tracked maybe. Yeah. Like yeah things were layered on. on here in the production. Yeah. Um, Number five, uh, Connections, another original tune. Uh, it's kind of a haunting uh, minor chiming piano chords uh, with uh, kind of drum soloing uh, behind. Uh, and then you get some kind of heavy uh, bass piano lines that build uh, tension of the chords. And then uh, some uh, higher cascading piano notes. With Then he adds sort of a voice narrative at the end. Um yeah, this this is one of the weaker tunes from my point. Uh, you know, he's he's making some kind of uh, statement here, but uh, musically, I thought, uh, and it's the uh, title track, huh? It's the title track, yeah. Weird. <laughs> uh, then uh, six, uh, stop fighting. Uh, it's uh, another original tune of his. It's a nice piano intro. It's joined by uh, kind of subtle Latin percussion and a kind of a. I think a bowed bass in here. It's kind of an upper register. I think it's bass because there's. At first, I thought maybe it's a cello sound, but no. I think it's a bowed bass and flute lines that are added on top here. Then there's some repeated piano chords that build up the tension, um, and then about a little bit halfway through, past the halfway, a heavy beat comes in under a kind of new synth lead section that brings it into kind of fusion territory. And then a piano riff from the beginning uh, returns kind of for a soft uh, ending. Uh, number seven is... We also uh, get a little uh, vo vo vocal message in this tune too. Yeah. When he talks to us. Yeah. Which kind of, you know, yeah, the usual kind of, it was a bit of an anodyne message. Just stop fighting. Just stop. He Just says, stop. You know? yeah. yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> oh. Oh. Okay. <laughs> well, he is twenty years old, so I know. Yeah. yeah. But, um, but but I think of that Bill Burr routine. Oh, am I not supposed to do that? Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't. Maybe I'm just old and jaded. What can I say? Jaded. We're jaded. Yeah. We're uh, jaded. Seven. Uh, Stevie Wonder tune. Lately, uh, it's a nice solo ballad. Uh, piano treatment here uh there's some horn and flute backing that comes in midway as he builds the tune up he's got a lot of uh rolls uh, percussive playing and some runs i thought it's a bit overplayed here uh it could be a little more subtle for my taste but it does calms down uh towards the end uh interestingly the last sort of cadence is left unresolved uh and then it uh sort of segues into track eight. I'm sorry. Another original. Uh, this has got a funky organ riff opening that gets into a R and B feel. And then, uh, yeah, Whitaker gets into some fun with the organ here. Uh, his tones uh, build things up and he always keeps it funky on uh, this one. Uh, number nine is uh, Janine uh, by Oscar Brown Jr. Duke Pearson. This is kind of a Latin number, another new hmm. style. Hmm, yeah, uh, incorporated here. Uh, he's got some horns, uh, an arrangement on this, and uh, what? It, but he does build a nice uh, piano solo here uh, on an acoustic piano. He, he kind of uh, gives us a Latin vamp that uh, percussion and horns build over, and then there's a few percussion breaks for fun. 
on this one, the uh, kind of Latin treatment tune. Uh, number 10, uh, the uh, Duke Ellington, Bob Russell, I uh, don't get around much anymore. And this features Regina Carter. So then a nice, fun, uh, slow swing through this classic tune uh, with uh, acoustic bass and uh, drums, kind of a piano trio. And uh, then added on top of that, Carter's violin. And Carter really milks the phrases here uh, for some uh, really bluesy fun. And uh, so it's a nice treatment of uh, this classic tune uh, in a relaxed uh, tempo. And uh, Carter is featured well here. Uh, 11 is kind of a interesting interpretation of the Dave Brubeck tune, uh, Blue Rondo a la Turk. Uh, it starts out with the familiar intro uh, played, you know, uh, as uh, close to the original, as you would imagine. Uh, and then we get some flute and synth layers uh, that come into the new arrangement. And then there's a real uh, new twist to it with a heavy, slow beat, a syncopated bass and a funky groove that the flute solos over for a while. Uh, then Whitaker comes back in on a solo piano break. Uh, the funky beat comes back under him. And then there's this kind of bizarre uh, narrative about his uh, life with starting from his uh, premature birth uh, and then uh, his achievements, uh, despite um, the prognosis that he wouldn't uh, live long or be able to do things. Uh, a little bit, uh, I mean, I read about his story uh, there first, but um, yeah, these kind of narrative things uh, kind of feature on this album. Uh, 12 uh, tune uh, called Trust Me, by Richard Smallwood. Uh, this is uh, like a live solo piano performance with a gospel feel, uh, a rather short piece. And then uh, that quickly changes into track 13, It Will Be Okay, another original tune. Uh, this is like a, a kind of a cool piece. I like this one. Uh, it's a relaxed organ groove, but it's actually like in a 7-4. It's like a four beat and then three beat uh, kind of interesting rhythm uh, that goes uh, through some uh, different development and then it really the groove picks up as it goes on and gets more intense uh, so this is a uh, kind of uh, interesting organ showcase here uh, 14 Garden Wall by uh, Roger Guth, Jim Mayer uh, this is a, now the album takes a, another turn into sort of fusion territory I, I believe this uh, is a piece from a Dave Weckl album called Master Plan this is a really synthy a fusion piece, but uh, he also gets in an acoustic piano solo on here uh, with some other synth work too. Um, then uh, the next track, uh, Acceptance, another original tune, uh, which is also kind of, uh, the whole piece is sort of this hip hypnotic synth groove uh, that has some uh, synth lead soloing uh, over some heavy drumming. So th this sandwich with the previous tune you're kind of in fusion territory and then for the final tune uh we sort of shift gears to uh gospel with uh, uh charles gabriel uh sevilla martin tune uh, his eyes uh is on the sparrow uh solo acoustic piano uh for kind of this gospel tune but uh, drums and organ join in midway through and uh, bring it to a climax uh so you've got this new talent um here, uh, Matthew Whitaker, uh, he's, you know, 
technique for 20 years old and uh, all these ideas in various styles is uh, really amazing. Um, in a talent uh, category, yeah, he's amazing. However, the recording I felt is kind of like, you know, it's a buffet of styles. That's yeah, the uh, album. Yeah. It's kind yeah, of showing a... what he can do, but it's a buffet with too much to eat uh, for me. Uh, <laughs> I understand. Yeah. I kind of felt the, uh, I felt the same way, although I did enjoy, a, 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 I didn't enjoy the whole thing. Let's just say that yeah, but yeah. there were some pieces. I really, some things on the plate I really yeah. like. So it's a showcase for him, but mm. the, the, the weak point is there's no central musical theme. Um, yeah. And I thought the weak points for me are the the electronic kind of fusion tunes with the synth. Um, they don't really do much for me because, you know, I, I don't know. I, I feel like that, that kind yeah, of... It's hard to get a lot of like a feeling out of feel, let's say, out yeah. of synth. You know, it's really yeah. just a sound. I feel like that fusion yeah. thing is sort of best left in the past. It's just my own personal... Thing. You know, so uh, some genius comes along and reinvents it. But yeah, we'll see. and then uh, also even on you know like on the Latin number and some of the other ones, I felt that the the production is a bit heavy in some yeah. places. Um, I'm sure he sounds great uh, in a live setting, but you, you can just get the sort of heavy-handed production uh, feel on uh, some of the tunes. But hey, he's only 20 years old, uh, and I don't I wouldn't fault him for any of these. Uh, sort of decisions that were made in the studio. Uh, he's obviously being well promoted. So for me, yeah. He's probably pro- being directed as well. I think yeah, he's yeah, saying, exactly. why don't you make an album like this, you know? Um, and uh, I think as soon as he uh, goes that Stevie Wonder route and just kind of, you know, does what he wants to do and just has like themed albums, we might hear some pretty spectacular stuff. Oh yeah. You know? Cause he's got all the tools. Yeah. So I think it, mm. for me, um, yeah, he's a, a young a uh, kid with, you know, great technique and, uh, you know, uh, aptitude in a lot of styles and things. So it'll just be a case of wh- what is he going to focus on? Uh, what's going to be his uh, direction? It'll take him some time uh, to figure that out. Um, but I'd like to hear, you know, a release from him, you know, focusing on one thing, like, is he going to do an all organ album? Oh, of course we're going to like that, you know, yeah. uh, well, we're going to like that. Yeah. Of course, but uh, even an gonna, old piano album, I bet he'd be great. I bet I'd yeah. like that a is lot he, is he gonna do I like a, his piano playing. Yeah. Is he going to do something? Uh, I, I, I think since this is uh, number three of his releases, it's already his third album. He really, should, yeah. you know, he's already done like a calling card record. You yeah. Know, so. But he, he is young. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's kind of, it's kind of strange historically to think of, you know, this. So it's, it's super young to think these days, but when you go back to like, you know, the, the fifties and sixties, you know, a lot of the great, uh, you know, jazz players, uh, they sort of had their first debuts around the same age. And and so there wasn't, uh, yeah, but they weren't leaders, were they? They were playing with someone uh, else. Sometimes they were, but, um, in their early twenties, but, you know, there wasn't uh, this sort of historical um, palette of styles to choose from. Right. Um, but yeah, so, you know, I think, you know, I'd just be interested to see what he chooses. Like, what is he going to focus on? Uh, what is his, his thing going to be? That's what I want to see, um, you know, wh- where he decides to, uh, I, I mean, he'll have to choose something to focus on and maybe he'll jump around well, in a variety of styles you know i think so. about like chick korea over the course of his career solo piano and then he had his trio and then he did the yeah, spanish band you know, 
and all that yeah, kind of stuff. He did yeah. some. Few, he had a lot of. He wore a lot of hats, and I feel like yeah. uh, Matthew Whitaker can do that too. But he's just at the beginning of his career, and just hoping yeah, sure. he'll he'll kind of follow that or do that. You know. Yeah. So um, he shows that he can do lots of things here, and uh, you know, definitely a young jazz cat to watch uh, <laughs> what direction he's going to go into. Um, Cause he could go anywhere. Um, it'll just depend what he wants to focus on and what kind of players he surrounds himself with. Right. And uh, I hope he breaks out of this kind of uh, marketed um, kind of approach thing. Hey, yeah, I don't blame him for doing that and signing up and I hope he makes uh, uh, a good career uh, financially out of it. Um, I just hope he doesn't get uh, kind of straight jacketed into some sort of uh, production thing because uh, people know his name from early on uh so I hope yeah, the, his, the uh, people who know music best are the people who make it so yeah <laughs> you wanna, so hope his creative wanna, uh, outlets uh hmm. don't have any uh sort of uh barriers put up at an early stage because he definitely has potential to uh do lots of things here right okay i thought this was going to be a massively long podcast but it turned out to be just long <laughs> <laughs> just as usual that's right yeah, yeah so i thought i had so much i I had made like pages of notes over my uh you, sometimes i'll just write like half a page or a quarter of a page and today i had like five pages of notes that i wanted to talk about these um composers i figured how oh, this is gonna take forever to get through but i guess it didn't i don't know well yeah i think it's yeah. a, a good length and uh we've kept that uh american spirit uh yeah or mostly all american uh, almost all american spirit uh, through this one um, and most importantly we're then, back and we're building up a new wave of momentum here so we're going to be back next week again yeah with another and, theme uh, i got a theme coming up see if you can guess all you deezer use to see if you can guess what the theme is when i post my three recordings okay well, okay. well I'll, I'll look at yours and i'll see if i can uh, well, I'm going to tell you what it is because you're yeah. going to have to come up with a title. You have to come up with a title. That's true, too. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, the title reigns almighty into the uh, download numbers on these. Yeah, you would hope yeah, the that, content. By, by the way, if, you, if you're out there listening, thinking, oh, they put a lot of work into this, uh, you know, listening to these recordings and doing this long podcast. No, the most work on this podcast goes into deciding what the title's going to be. Yeah, because that unfortunately influences the download <laughs> numbers so much rather than the actual yeah. musical selections, which is uh, it kind of sad, <laughs> saddens me a bit, you know. Yeah. But uh, what are you going to do? I don't know. I just hope people listen and listen to the music. That'd be cool. Yeah, listen to the music. That's what it's all about. Um, all right. And that's what uh, keeps us going and doing this. Uh, well, we've got lots of things coming up to drive us right through the right. fall season and it's I'm good sure to be back in the chair with the mics here this good is to great to be back here and uh, yeah. you know, i think we're gonna have room. to do we're gonna have to do uh a couple face-to-face -face, uh, barbecue sessions uh two coming up yeah, before uh, the, the weather changes yeah, before the better, weather changes yeah. better make it quick because uh classes are starting it's gonna be uh yeah. occasions aren't gonna be um to I'll work on that numerous we've got the studio equipment to do those things too so Right. So this has been episode 27, a m almost all American 
Selection, almost all American selection of adult music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. And after our summer break, we're back and we'll be here every week and maybe more often through the fall, right to the end of the year. And even through the end of the year, I think, I think we'll probably go on into the new year. Yeah, with no breaks and extra episodes uh, and hopefully some new interviews too. So thanks for listening. Uh, Remember to uh, subscribe, join, like, uh, send us a message. uh, Let us know your ideas and reflections on the podcast. And we'll be sure to be back next week with a new theme and uh, new recordings in classical and jazz for you. So until next week... Uh, Keep listening and check us out on Deezer if you want to hear the recordings before the podcast next week. And uh, if not, uh, we'll definitely be back next Monday with a new episode for you. And until then, stay tuned and keep listening. Mm -hmm.